After being thrust into the spotlight with the publication of the 95 Theses in 1517, Martin Luther worked to engage in a conversation with the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, but without much success. By the summer of 1520, both Luther and the Pope realized there was little chance of reaching an agreement. The Pope responded with the publication of the papal bull, Exerge Domine, a hastily written document that formally outlined Luther's perceived errors. Concurrently and independently, Luther released the open letter to the Christian nobility, an attack on the church's authority over the secular realm. At the end of the open letter, Luther hinted that he had a second attack ready. Luther was hinting at today's document, the Babylonian captivity of the church, an attack on the medieval sacramental system, the very core of 16th century Roman Catholic church power. I'm Mike Yagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the review of the history and content of documents from the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. So some background. There's quite a bit that's happening at this time in the fall of 1520, so we're going to take a couple of minutes to get everyone caught up. First, the Pope published Exerge Domine, and I, I, I probably keep Arise, O Lord, and help us with this uh, wild boar that's gotten loose in your vineyard. It's a rough listing of Luther's errors in the June of 1520 uh, that leads the path for Luther to be excommunicated. And now that we talked about the papal bull uh, way back in episode 14, uh, but things moved slowly back in 1520. Uh, although the bull was published in June, uh, they still had to officially deliver it, and that took a few months. Uh, the job of delivering the bull in the German regions was given to Luther's chief opponent, John Eck, or Johann Eck, uh, and to Jerome Aleander, an Italian scholar who was well-respected well in Rome. They were given 100 copies of the bull to deliver to the emperor, princes, bishops, universities, and major cities. So the delivery of the bull in Germany wasn't going very well in late summer and the early fall of 1520. Things got so bad in Leipzig that John Eck had to hide from the crowds in a monastery when he was trying to encourage them to burn Luther's writings. And and when Luther's works were finally burned in Leipzig, mostly because the bishop insisted, uh, they only burned a few pamphlets. Eck was supposed to deliver the bull to Luther, but he wasn't too keen to travel to Wittenberg, so Luther was never formally served the bull. A copy was sent to the authorities in Wittenberg through a courier, and that copy was then forwarded to Luther. It took so long that Luther, for a time, thought that this was all just a rumor. Yeah, yeah, and you know, now, Aleander, if that's how, Aleander? Aleander had more success. Yeah, he, he did He did a little bit better, actually a lot better. He, he went to, the first copy he sent was to the emperor. And the emperor, uh, Charles V, immediately ordered all of Luther's books burned in Belgium and Holland. So he was successful. But he wasn't always so lucky. It was surprising to learn that Archbishop Albrecht of Mainz was sympathetic to Luther. Uh, so he was hesitant to carry out the burning of Luther's books. What makes this interesting is Albrecht of Mainz was one of the main causes for Luther posting the 95 Theses when Albrecht of Mainz brought Tetzel to Germany to help pay off the debt he took on to gain his bishop position as archbishop. Now, we covered that in episodes one and two, actually, you know, way, way back. Yeah. Well, but this archbishop, though he had you know brought in Tetzel to sell the indulgences, he had several humanists, uh, those who were... Um, they were sympathetic to Luther. They were symp they uh, liked a lot of the appeals to reform that Luther had. So, uh, and then another reason why everything was going very poorly for Eck and Aleander was because Luther had just published the formally published the open letter to the Christian nobility in August of 1520. Uh, that was right about the same time uh, Eck and Aleander were trying to get Luther's books burned. So, Luther yeah, that letter was primarily an attack on the church's authority over the secular realm and included several popular calls for reform of the church. You know, it was it was funny because even people who were like uh, Duke George, Duke George in December of 1519 was calling Luther's writing scandalous. But here in and, you know, after the open letter, after the, the publishing of the open letter, Duke George is saying, you know what? Luther has something here. This is he's really he's really on to something. And he wrote to the Pope, telling the Pope, "Hey, you know, you should listen to what Luther has to say." So, even in areas where Luther was at, we'll call it a, a disadvantage, like people like 
you know, uh, Duke George, you know, he made some real headway with that open letter to the Christian nobility. So we're almost caught up. Uh, the Pope has released its Sergei Domine with little success. Luther has released his open letter. And concurrent to all of this, Luther was working out the theological structure of the Babylonian captivity of the church. That's what we're talking about today. He first mentions it in a letter to his friend, Splatin. Uh, there, in December 1519, even while the open letter is being done, Luther has hinted that he was ready to issue another attack on Rome. So, in the open letter, and if you go through and read the open letter, it closes with a warning. And what Luther says, and I'm quoting here, uh, Well, I know another little song about Rome and the Romanists. If their ears are itching to hear it, I will sing that one to them too. And the pitch is in the highest key. You understand what I mean, dear Rome? I don't know if the Pope had any idea what Luther was talking about. It's a little, uh, a little tough vague. To get. A, little a little vague. But what Luther was saying was that the open letter to the Christian nobility isn't the last thing on his mind. I mean, it's not the finish. It's not the period. There's more coming. So Luther felt that the Roman Church, uh, their their constant involvement, and uh, let, let's take a step back. Luther uh, mostly wanted to free the Church, and uh, in, in the open letter. And I think even in the Babylonian captivity, but mostly in the open letter, he sees the church being very involved with the political realm. And he sees that as being a burden on the church, restricting the church's ability to proclaim Christ crucified, died, and risen. And so Luther is hoping through the open letter, not just to undermine the church's, the the Pope's ability to get to Luther, Luther's hoping to help the church free itself of all these political entanglements that get in the way of the gospel. And, and so, but that, that was, now that that was done, the Babylonian captivity of the church is the real attack that's coming on Rome. So in his little comment at the end of the open letter, Luther says he's ready to write something else if Rome wants to hear it. I don't know if Rome wanted to hear it or not. <laughs> but put another way, Luther is saying, if the Pope comes at me again, I'll hit him even harder. So, exerge domine, uh, maybe that's what finally pushed Luther to release the Babylonian captivity. If they're going to say this about me, let me say this about them. Well, you know, in my research, what it looked like was that Luther was, he didn't even know exerge domine was coming. You know, and it was actually a couple other things that, that kicked him off. Uh, there was, um, so we've got this guy named Augustus Alved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Who's he, Mike? Theologian in Leipzig. Leipzig is really a, a, a center for, it seems like everything's happening in Leipzig. You know, Duke George is in Leipzig. You got all this stuff happening in Leipzig. But, uh, uh, this Augustus Alved is a theologian in Leipzig. And, uh, he wrote a treatise called Treatise Concerning Communion of, in Both Kinds, which was published in, um, uh, really, that's published in response to Luther's discussion back in December of 1519. Those treatises on the sacraments. Which we covered in, I forget what episode it was. Uh, that was 13, I think. Okay. So Ovid is defending the church's position that did not allow the laity to receive the wine. So, but Luther he wrote privately to his friend Spalatin, and he says, The Leipzig ass has set up a fresh brain against me, full of blasphemies. So Luther is, is gearing up for an attack on, on Alved, but he has, although he's using this as his starting point, you know, he said, you know, if, if anybody attacks me, I'm going to hit hard, harder back. He's thinking of Rome. You know? And then there's an anonymous uh, tract from Italy titled The Recantation of the Augustinian Martin Luther Before the Pope. It is a fictional letter imagining what Luther would say if he was to recant. So, in, in the, the whole beginning of the Babylonian captivity, uh, Luther makes pretty quick work of both of these. You know, he, he really, you know, he sort of tears them apart and then moves on to what, like I, we were saying a moment ago, you know, yeah, you know, this was sort of the trigger, but his real sights are set on Rome. And, so, and the medieval sacramental system. Yeah. All right, so Mike, we're going to have a beer break now. Um, tell us about our beer that we're drinking now. Well, today's beer is uh, St. Basil's Abbey-style beer from Brewery Becker. Now, Brewery Becker is is a favorite of, of both Evan Both of us, I. yeah. Yeah. And if you have not been to it, it's on 500 West Main Street in Brighton, um, just uh, east of the train tracks. 
Yeah, and, and it was, you know, it's, they, I, I don't think you can buy the St. Basil's anywhere but uh, at Brewery Becker. It just happens to be our local brewery that, that we hang out at. Yeah, it, and so it's been there since 2014. It had been kind of a... Uh, uh, the Pink Hotel, the Western House, it's been called different things. Yeah, but the, it goes the, back, I, what what year did they build that place? Uh, 1873, eight, yeah. I think. It, it's been a while. Um, yeah, eighteen. Uh, it was basically what 1873, happened. 1873, yeah. 1871, 1873, right around that time frame, uh, there was a boom in, in, the, in the Brighton, Michigan area. Uh, and, and so they... It's kind of rooted in the railroad trade and the transient population moving through there. Now, after about 1900, as tra- uh, traffic moves from the train to the automobile, it moves from Main Street onto Grand River, and that brings down a little bit of decline of the Western House. Well, the Western House actually declined before that because in 1871, I think, roughly, they, they built it. And then by 1873, there was a there was an economic collapse oh yeah and and so what they so ended the up Rosnifer. yeah and so the the guy this this guy who built it what was his name Aza uh, Rosnifer. yeah so he 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 basically went broke he went bankrupt lost the place and it's sort of bounced around and and brightened from owner to owner trying different things to get it going and and now and like we mentioned in 2014 uh brewery becker took it over and and really built the the and it's now I mean everybody in town goes there it's a it's a favorite favorite hangout you know it does not have a lot of TV so if you're going there to watch your favorite sports game you're going to the wrong place yeah. if you're going there to have a good conversation with people um, it's a, a great place uh, the music's not super loud you have a chance to be able to sit across a table from someone and have a good conversation their outdoor patio during the summer is a perfect place i was uh, just there last night as a matter of fact it was a wonderful night you know a little bit of music in the background just enjoy the outdoors it's 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 a great place to hang out so now. this particular beer saint basil's is a belgium dark strong uh, caramel and malt balance out with a direct kick of alcohol uh, it is a 10.8% uh, <laughs> very direct a, kick. A direct know. kick. Uh, it's kind of dry for um, uh, such a weighty beer, but uh, it, it's a good beer. It's brewed with goodness, discipline, and knowledge in much the same way that they renovated their building with goodness, discipline, and knowledge. They've brought it to the beer they brew as well. Uh, it's it's good stuff. Now, the, all the proceeds from this, all the go to... Uh, if you buy the bottle. If you buy the bottle, go to educational local educational opportunities, which is a... I always like to hear these these breweries doing that, helping out the local community, and this is this is a wonderful example. Well, that's that. what is happening in Michigan with these local craft breweries, is that they are tied to their community versus some imbev in Belgium that is gobbling up business yeah yeah it's, it's a great great beer great uh great place to hang out so so that ends the beer break okay all right back down to the babylonian captivity <laughs> why is it called babylonian captivity when they're in germany and they're writing about the pope in rome yeah you know it's a reference first of all to the old testament story if you if you know your old testament there's the the and i think we talked about this maybe in the in a previous episode but the the jews were they, they had the whole sacramental system there and they had the temple they're in jerusalem yep. and the babylonians with nebuchadnezzar come in uh 586 bc they destroy the temple they knock down the walls and they take the people away uh to babylon and and that is the great captivity and so what what luther is saying is that the, just as the babylonians took the jewish people captive the pope and the roman catholic church is take is taking christendom christendom yeah. captive with yeah. with the way they're handling the the jews were taken away from the temple the center of their life of worship and forced to live under the tyranny of babylon so if you're thinking about your your bible uh you've got ezekiel jeremiah and uh, Daniel are the books that are, t- and es- Esther comes after this, yeah. uh, the Persians. So there is this period from about 586 to about five, what is it, uh, 25, something like that? Something like that. Um, where the Babylonians are the big cheese. And this is what Luther is using as a metaphor, that we have been taken away from the root of our faith, which is the scriptures. As the Jews were taken away from the temple, we have been taken away from our trust and reliance in the scriptures, and instead we're being held by 
Rome in captivity. Now, we're going to get into what these captivities are, but let's talk about the context for which Luther wrote this wasn't necessarily for a big general audience. No. I mean, it's got a really catchy title. I mean, the title is catchy. It's, it, is, it is a great title. I, I, always, I always take note of these titles. I, I think that the, you know, this is one of the best. You yes. know, Babylonian Captivity of the Church is a fantastic title. I could just imagine the woodcut surrounding the title page and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but he released it only in Latin. Uh, maybe that's a sign that he intended it to be written, uh, I mean, not written, but read by theologians and other intellectuals. Yeah. And, but and it reached a general audience. How did that happen, Mike? Well, there, there was a guy, and his name was Thomas Murner. Uh, he originally supported Luther, but after reading the ba- Babylonian captivity of the church, now Thomas Murner was interested in a reform of the church. But he was not interested in the kind of reforms that Luther outlined in the Babylonian captivity. So he decided that, you know, he basically turned against Luther. He read through the Babylonian captivity. He turned against Luther because of it. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to publish this in German so that everybody will see what what a horrible person Martin Luther is. Unfortunately to Murner. Many people misunderstood his intentions and thought he translated the document because he agreed with it. (laughs) Fortunately for us, the translated version only served to widen acceptance of Luther's thoughts. So, so yeah, it, it, it couldn't have turned out worse for Werner. But you know, it, it was that, you know, so. Now we've got you know we've got the the the, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, everybody's reading it, and and honestly, when I read, it, I'm not a theologian. Okay, I I, I enjoy reading Luther, but the uh, the the Babylonian captivity was written. I thought clearly enough that even a non-theologian could understand it, you know, yeah. with with a little bit of theological background, not not a full, you know, not a full MDiv. Or it's anything. simple things. I love how Martin Luther uses topic sentences that give you a roadmap to what he's going to say. This isn't James Joyce, where one sentence is like three pages long. You know, you've got simple sentences that will say, like, the, septi- the second captivity of this sacrament is... Blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I mean, he, it's a title sentence. You know what this paragraph's going to be about. You know, the next six, seven paragraphs are going to be in support of that topic sentence. A- until you get to the next one. And the third captivity is this. And, yeah. and so you can, you can sort of really put brackets around what he's talking about and really follow it. At least I thought so. Well, and even the opening paragraph gives you the whole thing ahead. He goes, this tyranny derives from the power of the misuse of the sacraments, chiefly the Lord's Supper. This misuse follows the trajectory of the late medieval sacrament theology. With its over-dependence on classical Greek philosophy, in practice, the papacy enslaves the church with three captivities. And here's what he's going to do. The withholding of the cup from the laity, transubstantiation, and the sacrament of the mass. There in that beginning paragraph... He, he, yeah, he tells you exactly what he's going to go after. Now, for me to understand, the one thing uh, for me to understand the Babylonian captivity, I needed to go and brush up on my Arist- uh, Aristotelian. Aristotelian logic. You yeah. know? And so that was the, the, the Aristotle, because Aristotle was such a big part of Roman Catholic theology. You, you really need Thomas to have- Aquinas brought it in. Um, philosophy gets built... Uh, Theology gets built on the philosophy, and and so you have this uh, document here. Yeah, and so you're going to need to, you know, if if you're going to choose to read the 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 Babylonian captivity, you know, we're going to try and help you with a little bit of that uh, Aristotelian thinking, Logic, yeah. Uh, so so you can possibly work your way through this also. So let's let's get started on this. So Luther writes. Uh, about each of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church in this work, but he devotes nearly half of the book to the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And we're going to look largely at the captivity of the church and how the Lord's Supper is addressed. So, and and there, mostly, what he's concerned about is uh, the sharing of the bread and the wine with the laity. When, when you read through this, the vast majority of the Babylonian captivity, when he's talking about... Uh, the communion, he's really spends a lot of time talking about sharing the, both the, the bread and the wine. As we mentioned in a previous episode, Luther spent a lot of time working through the foundational arguments regarding his theology, but nobody seemed to pay much attention until he out- outlined it in concrete. And that, that we saw that first with the 95 Theses. We saw it again in 1519 when Luther went through 
and started talking about offering the bread and the wine. And the same thing is going to happen here uh, with, with the Babylonian captivity. Once again, we're talking about concrete changes to the church. And like we talked about, Thomas Murner got really upset when his, oh yeah, Luther's talking about reformed, blah, blah, no big deal. But now he's talking about these concrete changes and people get upset about it. Now, why does Luther care about whether the laity are, are offered both the bread and the wine? And it comes simply to this, the command of scripture. For Luther, to withhold the wine from the laity is to withhold them something they have been promised by the scriptures. And Luther is going to attach each of these captivities to how there is something other than scripture driving the doctrines. And if something other than scripture is driving the activity of the church, we need to reform it. Okay. And so the, the first captivity we're going to talk about now is the withholding of communion from the laity. Luther starts with a scriptural argument, Mark 14, 23. Uh, he reminds us, Christ says, drink of this, all of you. Yeah. Not drink of this, but only a few of you. Not drink of this, but only the best of you. Uh, drink of this, only those of you who we trust not to spill it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's drink of this, all of you. And so Luther's relying on that. And then, and he also goes into Paul, the first Corinthians eleven twenty three, uh, talking about communion. So, and there Paul says, for I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, not what I permitted you to have, not what I decided to give to you. What, what Luther is saying is that this is a gift from Christ. And Paul doesn't pretend to have the authority to withhold Christ's gift. And that Luther is calling on the church to also share Christ's gift of the of the blood, of the of the wine. And he gives a few more scriptural points. Um, but then he also adds that this isn't uh, something that should be done by force. It's not like we're going to introduce the cup by force. Um, he even says, Therefore I do not urge that both kinds be seized upon by force, as if we were bound to this form by a rigorous command, but I instruct men's consciences so that they may endure the Roman tyranny, knowing well that they have been forcibly deprived of the rightful share in the sacrament because of their own sin. Now, I, I go back yeah. you know, my, my history with the Roman Catholic Church. When I was a kid, they only gave the bread. Yeah, you know, when, when I was when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they first offered the the, the wine. To the laity. To the laity. And uh and they said, you know, you, you can either have this or don't. You know, it's it's okay. Yeah. It, actually, they, they did exactly what Luther suggested. Right. But it, I remember it was like, and I remember myself, you know, going and getting communion and avoiding the cup because it was a common cup. And I was like, eh, you know, eh. yeah, I, I just wasn't into that, you know. And, and and plus, it seemed a little weird to me as a young Catholic that really the cup, that seems like that's for the, it was, it was funny to, to sort of live through this as a young man yeah. uh, as a back in the day. And as I've attended um, just a few uh, services in Catholic churches, I've noticed uh, observing how distribution happens that most people looked like they bypassed the wine. Yeah. Still yeah. today. Yeah. And they, they always, at least, they don't use the little cups that we no. use. And they and, use and the common. I, yeah. I mean, the individual cup has its own scandal that I struggle with. Uh, but it's permissible. Sure. <laughs> sure. And, and it's one of those things that, but, you know, to this day, you know, the cup is still sort of a on again, off again thing for the laity. But yeah. the Catholic Church does exactly what Luther suggests here and makes they it available. They didn't force it. They didn't force it. And I, you know, I applaud them for that. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, so. And um, that happened, uh, when did that happen? Mike? I'm going to say it had to be like 1970. Okay. In that time frame, 1970, 19, is when it came into my church. My, now, my church. Luther also quotes Cyprian of Carthage. So here's an example where Luther will propose a change with the support of scripture. Now, who is Cyprian of Carthage? So he was the Bishop of Carthage, which would be modern day Tunisia. Um, so Northern Africa. He was born in about 200. Uh, he was martyred by uh, beheading in 258. And during his lifetime, there was a controversy about how to handle people who had uh, denied their faith during persecution. Right. One thing to know is uh, Roman persecution was not a constant event. It would go through waves. And after uh, one of these waves of persecution, the church is kind of reorganizing itself, kind of figuring out again, how do we handle this? Uh, how do we handle the priests? How do we handle other people 
who during the persecution denied the Christian faith under the penalty of punishment, and now that the persecution is over, want to come back to the church. That's the controversy. Uh, But what Cyprian becomes important for Luther's argument is Cyprian talks about the bread and the wine being offered to the laity. And, so, and it's all part of this, you know, when when people are coming back from, they've denied Christ in the persecution, and part of the process of coming back is giving them communion again, that they're being welcomed back into com- the communion of the, of the church. And so yes. it's critical who gets the... And Cyprian defends the priests who refuse to give to communion to the people who are not repentant of their failures. Um... Now, again, Luther isn't really writing about Cyprian of Carthage to talk about uh, those who are returning from persecution. Right, right. But in this whole process, Cyprian mentions and makes it very clear that in that in the 200s, they shared both the bread and the wine. Yeah. And that was that's the critical point Luther is bringing up is that in you know his uh, tradition, quote unquote tradition, mm-hmm. or the history of the early church. They always shared the bread and the wine. He says it was a widespread custom in that church to administer both kinds to the laity, even to children, indeed to give the body of the Lord into their hands. And of this, he gives many examples. Among other things, he reproves some of the people as follows. The sacrilegious man is angered at the priest because he does not immediately receive the body of the Lord with unclean hands or drink the blood of the Lord with unclean lips. Um, Cyprian is important for Luther because he validates that early church tradition included both kinds. So if the church is going to build its teaching authority on, we've always done it this way, Luther is going to say, no, you didn't. You didn't always do it this way because we have St. Cyprian of Carthage who talks about it being served in both kinds. Right, right. And so, and this is, again, we've talked about this a lot. We'll bring it up again. You know, Luther and Lutheran theology is always looking to that tradition, looking to the, the great, the great flow of thought from the, from the apostles to make sure that we're sort of, we don't want to get off, off into the weeds here. We want Acts to- 2 to 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers. We, we need to be in unity with the scriptures and that's what the church should seek always to be. Yeah. Yeah. What's the second captivity of the Babylonian uh, captivity that Luther writes is about uh, the scholastic view of the sacrament. Now, so let's remember that the scholastic theology is the marrying of Christian theology to Aristotelian Aristotelian thought. Uh, so let's take a little side trip into some very, 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 very basic Aristotelian thinking. So one of the things Aristotle wants to do is try to figure out what things are, and how can you talk about things that have different appearances but are the same thing? So, for instance, uh, we are sitting at a table. And in substance, this is a table, but it has certain attributes that define it different from other tables. But you take away that it's brown or that it has wood grain, we still know in substance it is a table. Yeah, it could be made out of metal. It'd still be a table. It could have three legs instead of four. It could still be a table. There, there's so Aristotle was working through. Okay, well, what defines a table? You know, or or a chair or whatever it is. How do you? So that's what he's getting into. So he, Aristotle uses uh, these words: substance and accidents. Uh, that word accidents is not about a four-way stop and you don't know whose turn is and suddenly you hit each other. It's more like attributes. Uh, Aristotle defined uh, nine attributes. Quantity, quality, relation, action, passion, time, place, uh, disposition, that's the arrangement of the parts, and uh, raiment, whether a thing is dressed or armed. You take all these nine accidents and you can change them and yet you still have the same substance. Um, and so Mike and I are both men, um, but he has uh, some hair. I have a little bit more hair. A lot more hair. You take these accidents. Um, he's wearing a blue shirt. I'm wearing a black shirt, but we're still men in yeah. substance. Right, right. And so so the, uh, the critical thing, I think, for, uh, for our listeners to take away is that when, we, when, Lu- when Luther talks about accidents, He's really a, a more modern word or a non, non-theological or non-philosophical word would be attributes. I think that's, a, you know, so Luther talks a lot about the, the accidents of the bread and the wine, but what he's talking about are the attributes. And then there's this discussion of the substance, which is the, really, 
in 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 theological thinking and in, in Aristotelian thinking is the uh, is the body of body and blood of Christ. So there is a churchy word for what we're going to be talking about in the second captivity, and it's called transubstantiation. Uh, you know, that's although it's that's, not quite Latin, but it's not close Latin. Enough. Yeah, it's 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 it's. And it's this is too. so. Why is transubstantiation a captivity? It's it's less grievous, Luther says, as far as the conscience is concerned. Yet the gravest of dangers threatens the man who would attack it. To say nothing of condemning it. Here I shall be called a Wycliffe, a heretic by six hundred names. But what of it? Um, here is Luther's concern with transubstantiation. It takes away the authority to say the body of Christ is present in this meal from what the word of God says and places the authority for that confidence that Christ is present in this meal in philosophy. So what Luther is advocating is that there, all we need to have is a simple understanding that Christ says that he is present in the blood and yeah. the bread and the wine. This sacrament of the altar is the body and blood of Christ given for us Christians to eat and to drink. Because he said so. And I don't need to understand philosophical systems of substance and accidents to figure out that this is both the bread of Christ, uh, the bread that I know from every day and it is at the same time by the authority and power of the word of God, the body of Christ. Yeah. And, and, and the same goes for the, for the wine. So let's just explain how substance and accidents works now in transubstantiation. Here's, here's the, the philosophical system. That the words of institution are spoken, the canon of the mass is conducted, and that bread in substance disappears. And what remains is only the attributes of bread. And what is now there is the substance of Christ but the attributes of bread. So when you look at it, it looks like bread. It, it has like all bread. the attributes yeah. of bread, but in substance, it's Christ. Okay. And and Luther isn't necessarily all that concerned about uh, how true or not true that is. His big concern is that the authority for the presence of Christ in the meal has been divorced from Scripture and has been placed into the hands of a philosophical system. Okay. And when you look at, I, I hear some people say, well, Luther was against transubstantiation. That's not true. It's not that he was against transubstantiation. He's against it as an authority. That we, we don't have the ability to, that might be what happens, but maybe not. This is, this is, this is saying that, you know, what we, all we can really rely on, we cannot rely on some philosophical construct we can rely on the word of God. We can rely on the word of Christ. Christ says that he is there, and that's all we need to know. We know that Christ said, this is my body, and this is my blood. Uh, and if you need a philosophical system to explain that, then you are relying on a crutch instead of the scripture. Here is why it is a captivity. And in, in, inside of the three captivities of the Babylonian captivity of the church, is if you need something other than Scripture to validate the truth of God's Word, you are being held captive to your understanding of that system. And it only is good for you as long as you know that philosophical system, which places you in tremendous danger if you don't understand all the, the juggling that Aristotle requires. Yeah, yeah. And so, so really what Luther is calling for is a simplification of the teaching to the... Com and like we've said over and over again, at, the, at his core, Luther is a pastor. And he's deeply concerned with the common folk and what they're hearing. And what when he goes through this whole transubstantiation thing, it's not because he doesn't understand it. It's mostly because he's afraid that the common folk don't understand it, and that they that it it actually acts as an impediment to their understanding of what is happening in in the in the in the Lord's Supper. And if you think transubstantiation was the way the church had always explained the Lord's Supper, uh, I want you to understand that scholastic theology did not come about till about the 12th century. Um, so for 1,200 years, during which time the Holy Fathers never at any time or place mentioned transubstantiation. Uh, Luther, here's what he says, Moreover, the church, the church kept the true faith for more than 1,200 years, during which time the Holy Fathers never at any time or place mentioned this transubstantiation, a monstrous word and a monstrous idea, until the pseudo-philosophy of Aristotle began to make its inroads into the church in these last 
300 years. During this time, many things have been wrongly defined. So, transubstantiation, as Luther is writing about it, is only 300 years old as a philosophical system to explain what is happening in the Lord's system. Nowadays, it's become so entrenched in the language of conflict between Rome and uh, Luther that people think that that the church has always believed in transubstantiation, and Luther threw that out. No, Luther is actually addressing a system that was only in place for 300 years when he's writing about it. And even then, he says, it is just a juggling of words that requires too much of us. Yeah, yeah. So that, that covers, I think, the, That's second, the, second captivity. the second captivity. Now let's dive into that third captivity. And the third captivity of the sacrament of communion. Is Ooh, this that, gets us into more Latin. I'm excited. <laughs> oh my! Uh, is the idea that the mass is a sacrifice? And I'll let you say this. And then opus operatum. Okay. So why, why don't you take this one, Evan? All right. So opus operatum, by definition, is that the work of mass is effective even if you do not have faith, because you are in the presence of a work being done. You receive the benefit of the work. Now, you know, it's like osmosis. I think almost by the idea is that you're near to it, so you get it. Right. Right. And it, basically, it removes the the. It says you don't have to have faith. It just works. And this is really getting to. This is a huge, huge problem for Luther. And it's understandable. I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 I guess on the one hand, I can sort of understand the Catholic Church's view, which is that, or the Roman, the Roman Catholic view is that, hey, this is help. We want to be, we want to make sure that people feel comforted by this, even if they have, if, even if they're struggling in their faith. A lot of people struggle with faith, but at least they can take comfort that, that this is working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm sure that's what, what they're thinking is. Luther is totally against that. And Luther, you know, to, to give people a pass on faith is, is, a, is a huge disservice to the individual. You know, that to say, oh, you don't have to have faith. We'll, we'll do this for you. You know, yeah. you don't have to believe in the word of God. We, we got this covered for you. So Opus Operatum is looking at the work of Christ and how the work of Christ is communicated to a believer um, or to a person in attendance at the Lord's Supper. And so you would have, uh, during Luther's time, people going to the Mass and observing it. And not receiving the body and the blood of Christ, but simply observing it yeah, and receiving the benefit of it. It would go so far as that if you visit the churches in Europe uh, that are Catholic still, you will see many altars on the inside chapels and other places. And those were in place for a priest to say the Mass for the benefit of someone who had uh, endowed the saints of a Mass for someone who has died or someone else. And the notion was, as long as the priest is saying the Mass, the work of the Mass will be of benefit to somebody. Even if they're not there. Even Even if they're not there. Nobody's there. It's just the priest by himself. Just the priest by himself. And this, by out of the work of itself, certainly Christ is present at the Mass for the purpose of being received by the believer to eat and to drink the very body and blood of Christ. Uh, But if you take away the eating and drinking and make it just by observing, then you take away the observing and now it's just being done. And by the way, you paid for this two years ago and now I'm doing it and you get the benefit of it. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically what Luther builds his, his argument on is Christ's words. This cup is a testament in my blood. So, according to Luther, Christ defined communion as a testament. Okay, and, and so this is this is getting into Luther's logic. And so, if you choose to read through Babylonian captivity, we're, we're hoping to give you a little bit of a guideline on what to what to see here. What Luther is saying is that this is uh, that that when you have a testament, it's like a last will and testament. That this requires a couple of things. First one is that somebody has to die. And second one is that there's an inheritance. So it's the last will and testament. The, think of it the same way. The New Testament is a, is just like a last will and testament. Somebody had to die, and there's somebody who gets an inheritance. And so who dies in the New Testament? Jesus Christ. And who is the inheritor of Jesus' gifts? That's all of us. All that, Christians. All Christians. Ba- uh, baptized Christians. Is and the... so the inheritance is offered... 
and then the person who believes in the inheritance receives the benefit of it. Yeah. So John 3.16, For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only Son so that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You have Jesus Christ dying, the inheritance of Jesus Christ, that is, a place in the kingdom of God, is offered to all people. Jesus so, Christ died on the cross for all people, but who receives the benefit of that inheritance? Well, that's where Christ says, this is my body given for you. Luther makes a big deal about this for you. Mm-hmm. That for you is as the, the, the inheritors. That's mm-hmm. the, they're the ones. It's not, it's not just some people. It's that it's, it's a, that this is an offer yeah. to all. So those words for you define the gospel that God knows me as a sinner. He knows me in my darkness and my shame and my shadows, and he has offered Christ for me. Yeah. And faith in these words, given and shed for you, are what makes a person worthy to receive the Lord's Supper in a good way. Um, not how much fasting or other outward preparations I've done. Those might be good and faithful. But to have faith in these words for you means that I know I need it, and I know it's being offered for me, and it is entirely a gift. Pro nobis is the, the Latin phrase there. And uh, that became, uh, for Luther, the catchword of the gospel, to know it's for you as a gift. So uh, that, that covers, the for you covers who's the inheritors. That's where Luther is really hammers on the inheritors. And so he goes, so what is the inheritance? What is given to these, these inheritors? So what does Christ offer on the cross as a gift is the forgiveness of sins and the ability to again be a part of the kingdom of God. Think of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden. Uh, Christ forgives us of our sins on the cross and so we have access again to the kingdom of God. The for you of the Lord's Supper is for you I offer again the kingdom of God. And Christ specifically says for the forgiveness of sins. So Luther's making the point, the whole point of the Mass is not to perform a good work. The point of the Mass is to remember and receive the Testament that Christ has entered into on our behalf. We are receiving our inheritance when we participate in the Lord's Supper. St. Paul will write about this, as often as we drink this bread... and drink, drink this, <laughs> drink this cup. As uh, yeah, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is an announcement in First uh, First Corinthians chapter eleven that we are receiving the inheritance of the death of Christ. So I, I really like the way Luther paraphrases Christ uh, when he he says that the Mass is simply Christ saying, "Behold, O sinful and condemned man, out of the pure and unmerited love with which I love you." And by the will of the Father of mercies, apart from any merit or desire of yours, I promise you in these words the forgiveness of all your sins and life everlasting. And that you may be certain of this irrevocable promise of mine, I shall give my body and pour out my blood, confirming the promise by my very death and leaving you my body and blood as a sign and a memorial of the same promise. As often as you partake of them, remember me. Proclaim and pro- pro- praise my love and bounty toward you and give thanks. So that is that is actually a great way to approach communion, at least for me. So the Lord's Supper is not a good work that we do or observe being done. The Lord's Supper is receiving the promise of the forgiveness of sins. So the third captivity in the Babylonian captivity is changing the Lord's Supper from a good work to the delivery of a promise. Right. Right. So it looks like Luther had the most trouble when he tried to make concrete changes to the way things were done with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Whether we're talking about reforming of indulgences, giving laity communion in both the bread and the wine, um, there wasn't nearly the same level of pushback for his ideas of faith. But here's an interesting thing. So Luther is writing, 1520, the Babylonian captivity of the church about how the Lord's Supper should be offered in both bread and wine to the laity. And it was called scandalous at that time. And he did not immediately propose this in Wittenberg either. 1520 in Wittenberg, it is not happening. And 1521 in the Diet of Worms, he's excommunicated and declared a heretic, um, an outlaw. He's taken away to the Castle Church of Warburg. By friends. By friends. He is in Warburg, protected. And while he's there, Andreas Karlstadt, one of the other professors at the University of Wittenberg, introduces by force 
the distribution of the Lord's Supper in both kinds and requires the laity who have never taken the cup to take it to prove their faithfulness to the gospel. And Luther reacts to Karlstadt's forcing the laity to take the cup by returning from the Wartburg, uh, uh, removing himself from the protection of the castle and going back into the open because he sees the gospel at stake. So 1520, he's writing about delivering the cup to the laity. But even in 1522, that spring, he hasn't done it in Wittenberg and he's upset that Karlstadt forces it in Wittenberg. And this is, you know, it's funny. Uh, the things have obviously changed. The Roman Catholic Church now offers uh, the bread and the wine ever since Vatican II. Uh, they still talk about um, transubstantiation. They still, they, yeah, yep. But I don't know if your average person in the pew knows anything about Aristotelian logic and substance and accidents. Yeah. They, uh, most Catholics that I talk about believe they're receiving the body and blood of Christ for the for- forgiveness of their sins. Very Lutheran thinking. But... The sacrifice of the Mass as a work in and of itself, I think, is still a part of the canon of the Mass. It, it is, and as a matter of fact, just this, this morning I was reading uh, an article uh, where uh, a Catholic, a lay Catholic, was was extolling, was 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 talking about how wonderful it is that this is a, this is still a sacrifice. This was obviously a very theologically uh, 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 knowledgeable Catholic. Yeah. Uh, but that that is still a big part of it. So as we look at the Babylonian captivity, there are three captivities that Luther defined, and only one of the three are no longer a part of Catholic practice. The withholding the cup from the laity. Transubstantiation is still a part of Catholic practice, uh, or a definition of doctrine. Yeah. Although I don't think they require so much knowledge of the philosophical ascent. No, uh, no. Um, so maybe we model number two. Yeah. We call it a fudge. Uh, okay. Uh, a hack or a bodge, it's, it's, uh, uh, something's going on. There. Right, right. But number three, the work, when people ask me what are the difference between Lutherans and Catholics, I think this one is still significant. Uh, and that is, is the Lord's Supper a good work or is it the delivery of the promise of the forgiveness of sins? Yeah. And, and the operas operatum, that still for me is one of the major divisions between the way Catholics and Lutherans describe the Lord's Supper. You know, it's funny. I I, uh, I often go. I travel a lot, as you know. I, I and sometimes I I the the only local church when I'm in Asia or wherever I'm at is a Catholic church. And so I will go to church there. And what will happen is you'll have a three minute sermon. You know where the pastor, the priest. The homily, you know, the homily is basically, you know, well, you know, everybody, so something real quick and I'm done, you know, and everybody's happy about that. Okay. Because the main focus is to get to the The main focus is to get to the Eucharist and and the work of the sacrifice and and all of that. You know, it's the the homily, the word of God is... eh, you know, yeah. but it's actually the 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 work, the opus up, uh, opus operatum, uh, opus operatum. That is the most a work by the work. Thing. Yeah, and uh, now it's it's you know different churches run different ways, and yeah. I'm not saying that they're all like this, but but you know I have come across many Catholic churches where that's that is still the most important thing, and I would agree with you. That is the biggest that is the biggest impediment between uh, Lutheranism yeah. and Catholicism that I see today. Now. For me, when I'm talking about these differences, one of the things I find is the view from the pew. It points out the wonderful celebration of the Holy Spirit at work through the Word of God. Because I will find someone in the pew and talk to them, or maybe it's at a coffee shop, and I'll find out, no matter what the official doctrine of a church may be, the Word of God speaks with a clarity and a wisdom to their heart, and they believe in the truth of the Scriptures. And so they may be attending a church that is uh, delivering them a lot of speed bumps, a lot of false doctrines that make it hard to see Jesus. And yet, if the Word of God is being preached, if the Word of God is being read, the Holy Spirit brings about a true faith. And that's that's the wonderful joy, that in every church that you may visit or I may visit, we will find maybe some struggles in how things are said or done. But what a joy it is to know where the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit will be at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that... that uh, so we're out of time. Now, so what we're going to have to do is uh, continue our discussion on the Babylonian captivity of the church in our next episode. Um, 
let's let's get on. Uh, so I want to say thanks to Josh for all of his work. Uh, and then thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan for all their support and prayers for our for this podcast. So James Kittleson's Luther the Reformer, helpful to see uh, the role of the Babylonian captivity of what's going on in 1520. Uh, David Ritf- Whitford, uh, Luther, A Guide for the Perplexed is a, a nice uh, keep it simple kind of book. Uh, then you have uh, Scott Hendricks, which is a more recent book, Martin Luther, a visionary reformer. It's a you know I typically try and stay away from the 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 books that sort of look at Luther's psychology and all that. Uh, and this sort of goes into that realm a little bit, but mostly it's it's pretty yeah. good. That was a trend in the 60s and 70s for a lot of the biographies of Luther, the Freudian reading of Luther, the feminist reading of Luther. Yeah, that got real old yeah. real quick. So, the, but the you know the, he. He has a, uh, Scott Hendricks has a pretty good, uh, I think, a good look at it that's mm-hmm. some more balanced. We encourage you to look at uh, Luther's works, volume 44, uh, uh, published by CPH and Augsburg Fortress. So Wikipedia, we reference Wikipedia a little bit on this one. Um, and if you need to contact us, uh, you can send us an email. Like the person who wrote us about St. Uh, uh, well, that, that was the founders. Oh, that, was, that was the founders last time. I'm sorry. And then we got graceontap.podcast at gmail.com is the email. Let us know if you want to host a road trip. Uh, uh, this is uh, what's a road trip, Mike? A road trip is basically where Evan and I show up and we'll talk a little bit about theology. We'll come with the materials. Hopefully, you'll have a, yep. a handful of people there where we can talk to them. Usually hosted at a local brewery. Yes, yes. Uh, you can uh, also check us out on our, our uh, website, graceontap-podcast.com. Uh, also, catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap Podcast. Uh, Facebook, uh, our page there is wherever, whenever we have a new episode, we post it there or at the website. We would appreciate any reviews you could post on iTunes. It really does help get the word out. And some people have asked how long we're going to do these episodes, Mike. That's a good question. And we at least are going to do them through October 31st of 2017. After that, we'll see what happens. Yeah, uh, we'll... (laughs) If if you're interested in uh, in us, keep going. There's plenty to talk about. Uh, you know, there's plenty to talk about. So we're, we're so here's for Grace on Tap. Prost. <laughs> <laughs>